Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. Yeah? Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of ground to cover today. Kind of in a feisty mood. So let's get right to it. How does this happen? I, this is, there, there's, a, there's a story involving Tony Evers. Now, look, there, there's no secret. Tony Evers is, is soft on crime. That, that's just the reality. Tony Evers is the guy who is committed to trying to reduce the prison population in Wisconsin by half. I mean, we, we should be doubling the prison population, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in just a little bit. But it, it's sort of like one thing after another. The, the former head of Tony Evers' parole commission, remember when we had this story a couple months ago? He was the guy who wanted to take somebody who had murdered his wife in front of their children and was supposed to be serving like decades and decades and decades and turn them loose after a relatively short period of time. And and that would have happened were it not for the fact that the matter became public, there was pressure brought on Evers, and he ended up firing his, his parole chief. But but this, this is an election year. If Evers gets reelected in November, you know that this is his instinct, and you know that that's what they're going to, to start doing again. And it's only the fact that he's running for reelection that keeps him in check at all. But even so, some of these stories are absolutely mind-boggling. In 2019, Evers recreated something called the Juvenile Justice Commission. It is a state advisory group that advises, I don't know, the the governor on issues related to juvenile justice. And now a juvenile justice is in quotation marks because the truth of the matter is our juvenile justice system is a complete and total disaster. How many times have we talked about this where you have the, the kids that are out there stealing car after car after car after car after car, sometimes three and four a day, and they're, even if they're caught, they're turned loose and they're back out on the streets two days later stealing car after car after car after car, and it never ends until inevitably one of those kids driving 90 miles an hour or in a stolen car, fleeing from the cops, runs a red light and hits and kills somebody. And then, then they go to prison. But by that time, somebody is, is dead. The juvenile justice system is a joke, pure and simple. So this is, this is the, the commission that is supposed to, again, advise the state on juvenile justice matters and the things like that. It's a 19-member commission, including people from law enforcement, corrections professionals, attorneys, judges, mental health practitioners, and nonprofit organizations devoted to youth programming. All right, so so that's fine. One-fifth of the members are also under the age of 28. In order to receive federal funds, federal law requires the panel to be comprised of more than 20% of members who are under the age of 28 and at least three members who have been or are currently under the jurisdiction of the juvenile justice system. That's interesting. Three people have to be in the juvenile justice system. Hmm. 
All right, that, that, that's a rule that only government bureaucrats could love. Well, all right, that, that's, that's well and good. So three people have to have been either under the justice system or have been. All right, so you had to have some experience with this, which brings us to the story of Andre Evans, 24 years old, who was a member of this commission. Now, what happened is, in 2014, eight years ago, when he was a juvenile, Evans met a man, this is what the allegations are, met a man on Miller Parkway in West Milwaukee with the idea of buying a gun. Allegedly, he stole this guy's gun. All right, he was convicted in 2015, served three years in the Department of Correction, and was on probation for another three years. All right, so that's back. This is eight years ago. He's involved in stealing a gun from somebody he meets on Miller Parkway, etc. So he's on this commission. Well, okay, that, that's fine. He's on his com- this commission. He qualifies. He was somebody who was under the supervision of the juvenile justice system. He's under the age of 28. Okay, fine. Well, what's the story? Well, th- th- this shows— Again, where where the Evers administration comes from, because the story of Andre Evans does not end in 2014 when he was involved in this attempted theft of a gun. Let me take your attention, turn your attention to September 1st, 2019. According to the criminal complaint, Evans and another defendant went to a Walmart parking lot on East Capitol Drive, which happens to be right across the street from where I'm sitting, to wait for it, purchase a gun from a man they met on the Internet. Evans and Lydell, according to the complaint, robbed the guy at gunpoint. So he's accused in 2019 of doing the same thing he did in 2014. Robbed a man at gunpoint, taking his Chevy Malibu, two firearms, a wallet, and a cell phone, according to the criminal complaint. It doesn't end there. Six days later, Evans and Lydell allegedly met a second man at the Home Depot on North Port Washington Road, just a couple miles from where I'm sitting now, driving the stolen Chevy Malibu to purchase a gun from that man. According to the criminal complaint, Evans and Nichols stole the gun from the second man. So they're they're stick-up artists going around setting up times to meet and deal guns in parking lots and robbing the people. Later that day, officers pulled over Evans and Lydell in the Chevy Malibu. Evans, as they always do, flees on foot, throwing a handgun as he ran. When he was arrested, police allegedly found 1.7 grams of cocaine on him. The trial is set for October of 2022. And by the way, at the time this offense was allegedly committed in September of 2019, he was still on probation for the thing that he did in 2014, or extended supervision or whatever. This is the guy that Evers put on this commission. And it's not the 2014, you know, juvenile justice encounter, but he's wanted for stealing cars, stealing guns. Um, He's scheduled to go to trial in October of this year, and Evers puts him on this juvenile justice commission. How, How convenient. Gee, you know, we're we're interested in your impressions of the juvenile justice system. Of course, you know, you're allegedly in violation of your your release that you had your probation when you were in pro in 2014. So the Evers administration, this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it, has reversed course on its recent appointment of a convicted felon who is awaiting trial on five additional felony and misdemeanor charges to the governor's juvenile justice commission. 
let me read that line again. The Evers administration has reversed course on the recent appointment of a convicted felon who is awaiting trial on five additional felony and misdemeanor charges to the governor's Juvenile Justice Commission. The next sentence should be, what is going on with the Evers administration? How in the world do you not run any sort of background checks at all? How, I mean, you anybody can go to Wisconsin Circuit Court access. You can put in people's names, and you can see pending charges. How in the world can you appoint somebody? And I'm not talking about what he did in 2014. I understand that, you know, that's the criteria. The feds say you have to have three people that have been in the juvenile justice system, but they don't say you have to have somebody who is currently out on bail for armed robbery and fleeing police, whatever. Um, the after, after questions from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about the appointment, the governor's office said Monday that the appointment was withdrawn. <laughs> Mr. Ever, Mr. Evans' appointment came at the recommendation of local juvenile justice advocates to ensure the state-satisfied criteria required under federal law, said Ever's spokesperson. As we recently became aware that Mr. Evans has pending charges outside the scope of the juvenile justice system, Mr. Evans' appointment has been withdrawn to allow those proceedings to conclude. Okay, well, the question is, how did you not know about this in the first place? How can you appoint somebody to a panel to review the juvenile justice the system when one of those people is awaiting trial on armed robbery and car theft and all these sorts of other things and felon in possession of guns and all this stuff. This is the type of a person that you're going to appoint to this and you don't have any sort of background check at all. Huh. Again, um, some things that there might be some explaining. When we come back, what is your honest reaction to this story? I'll give you the story and we'll discuss in just a minute. More Jeff Wagner, right after this. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. One of our texters says, can we not find a bit more suitable person in the system? Well, yeah, that, that's exactly my point. You'd think that somebody somewhere would run a background check before you appoint a guy who's awaiting trial on armed robbery to, I don't know, the Governor's Commission on Juvenile Justice. <laughs> Here, you know, what, what do you think? Well, I think all these armed robbers, I think what we need to do is we, we need to stop prosecuting them. All right. Here is the story, and I want to get your honest reaction to it. On, on a daily basis, we hear the stories about people who driving a lot of times stolen cars, but uh, cars without insurance, they don't have driver's license, fleeing the police. And it's it again, if we want to talk about like high speed car chases, we could spend three hours a day, five days a week doing it. It's the current thing. Nobody pulls over for the the cops anymore. And as a general rule, very little happens to you, like I say, until you go through a red light and hit and kill somebody. And then then you go to prison for a long time. But unfortunately, somebody else is dead. But this is what happens nowadays. It's commonplace to run from the, the cops and. Many times the people run from the cops because they are able to get away. Well, here's the story from this morning, and I want to I want to read a portion of the story. This is the way Fox 6 reported it, but there's other accounts as well. Happened this morning. 
Police are investigating a fatal accident that occurred Tuesday morning, August 16th, that would be this morning, near 32nd and Atkinson Avenue. It happened around 1.15 p.m. According to police, officers observed a subject traveling west in the area of 27th and Atkinson at a high rate of speed. Officers attempted to stop the vehicle, but they terminated the pursuit due to the speed. So in other words, the car was going so fast that the police made the decision, we can't chase this. We can't follow it because we're going to put ourselves at risk. We might put somebody else who's out on the street at risk. It was driving that fast. A short time later, the driver of the speeding vehicle collided into a pole in the area of 32nd and Atkinson. The driver exited the vehicle, ran to the area of 32nd Street and Hampton Avenue. The driver collapsed due to his injuries. Police arrived, called for medical attention, performed life-saving measures. 28-year-old male driver died as a result of his injuries on the scene. A firearm and suspected narcotics were recovered from the speeding vehicle. The investigation is ongoing. So it's another one of these stories. 1 o'clock, 1.15 this morning, car driving like a bat out of you-know-where so fast and so recklessly that the police decide that they can't even safely chase it. Now, I don't know how fast it was, but my guess is, again, you're you're probably talking two or three times the speed limit for them not to be able to chase. The car is driving away. Driver ultimately loses control, not as a result of the, the chase, just driving so fast, loses control, slams into a pole and is dead. All right, it gets out of the car, but succumbs to injuries. They find a gun. They, they find um, some narcotics. We, we don't know if the car was stolen. We don't know the circumstances. They haven't released the name of the person. So all we know is a 28-year-old guy is, is dead. And I think there's a lot of speculation you can have, but that's not necessarily the point of the story. So here you have a, a driver killed in a you know one-car automobile accident. He's fleeing from the police. He loses control of the car, slams into a pole, and now he is dead. These are at least these are the types of stories that happen on a regular basis. The the dazzling detail about this is that, that the driver is dead. That does not happen very often. I want you to be honest. I want you to be honest. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What is your first reaction to this story? Driver flees from the cops. High rate of speed, such an excessive rate of speed that they don't even chase, loses control of the car a short while later, hits a pole, ends up dead. 855-616-1620. When you hear those and they find a, they find a gun and they find drugs in, in the car, your honest reaction when you hear that story, 855-616-1620, I'll give you my reaction and take calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Okay, your, your reaction to the story, and, and I'll, I'll give you mine in, in two, two words. And I, I don't apologize for this, but my, my two-word reaction is, is no sympathy. Look, I I am sorry for for victims of automobile crashes. I'm sorry, and I feel bad when bad things happen to good people. I'm sorry when you hear folks get diagnosis of terminal illnesses and things like that. I I feel bad for that. I I genuinely do. But this stuff has got to stop. 
it's got to stop and that the general reaction that people have around here is we're going to drive like maniacs we're going to flee from the police and more often than not like i say it's innocent people that get killed i'm sorry this guy lost his life but i really have no sympathy he made the decision to run from police at a high rate of speed and this is the type of stuff that happens when you do that and hopefully maybe the message gets out and maybe some of these other people learn that you know i I shouldn't run from the cops because i could end up in the morgue like this guy did from the high-speed chase last night eric eric you're on wtmj good afternoon jeff how's it going man good what are your what's your reaction to this i have four words for you got what he deserved well, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, thank, thanks for calling. It's tough to look, and, and you don't mean to sound. I'm, I'm swamped. I, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of texts, and that's the the general gist of all this. You never like to see anybody lose their life. You you don't. We 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 shouldn't revel in that. And I take no pleasure in it. But I have no sympathy. There are consequences for this antisocial behavior, and. You know, it's the chickens coming home to roost. The other thing that I'm glad of is that this psychopath who's running at a high rate of speed, you know, doesn't hit and kill uh, again. I don't know the the guy coming back from work, his second shift job or, or whatever, or I don't know, you know, some people who might be out late or whatever. At least in this case, if somebody's got to die, I would prefer it. And I hope that doesn't sound too harsh. I would prefer it to be the criminal who is running from the police at a high rate of speed as opposed to some innocent but again i have i have no sympathy on this mike on you're on wtmj good afternoon hi good afternoon jeff uh my honest brutal uh answer is i'm glad he's uh passed away he's on seems like a menace to society and uh i have no sympathy and i'm actually glad he's off the streets and out of here well, I mean, thanks. For, I mean, I think that's that's where I think more and more people. That's the point that more and more people are coming. Oh, that that's terrible! Don't you realize somebody lost their life? Well, the person lost their life because they were behaving in a reckless fashion that it jeopardized the life lives of other people. And I guess, I mean, that that's the other situation that's there. If somebody has to die, I would much, if that has to be the case, if somebody's got to die, I would much rather be at the guy that started all this by driving at the ridiculous rates of speed. I, again, if you're just, if you're not driving at a high rate of speed, this does not happen. If you don't flee from the police, this does not happen. This is a completely and totally preventable death. Like I said earlier, most times when this ends up happening, you find that it's an innocent that ends up getting killed and the person who's driving in the reckless fashion walks away from it. But I just, that's kind of my reaction too. No sympathy. Now, maybe if this was just a once in a blue moon sort of thing, you'd have a different feeling. But this stuff happens every day. And the only time, we don't hear about all the high-speed chases. Trust me on that one. The only time we hear about like the high-speed chases is when they end with, again, somebody smashing the car or killing somebody else. This goes on on a daily basis. Talk to the Milwaukee coppers and that's what they will tell you. In this particular case, you had a bad guy that ended up dead, and and maybe I'm just getting callous to this, but my general reaction is I, I have no sympathy. If you don't want to end up in the morgue as a result of a high-speed collision running from the police, then don't run from the police. WTMJ News Time is 12.32 p.m. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
High inflation, recession threats, and a parade of bad news. It's enough to make you lose sleep. It's no secret many Americans are worried about the state of the economy. Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management along with WTMJ's John McCure for Navigating the Markets. That's a special webinar presentation on Wednesday, August 24th at 11 a.m. It's a one-hour, 30,000-foot view of current market trends with a discussion of what to expect the rest of the year. Sign up at WTMJ.com. Navigating the Markets with Annex Wealth Management and 620 WTMJ. All right. Now, let me give you the flip side of of the story that I was talking about, you know, a couple minutes ago, the story where you have the guy that runs from the police at a high rate of speed and ends up hitting a pole and and dying. And I think that the general reaction was, it's too bad the guy's dead, but you, you can't have too much sympathy. This is what's happening on the mean streets of Milwaukee when criminals make these various decisions, and there are consequences for it. This is the flip side, and this is what happens more often than not. This is the way Fox 6 reports it. Anthony Hernandez, and I can just feel my blood pressure going up as I share this story with you. Anthony Hernandez, 19, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, of Milwaukee, faces charges in connection with a fatal crash during a police pursuit that happened on July 28th. Prosecutors say he was driving a stolen car, and shouldn't have been behind the wheel in the first place because he's never had a valid driver's license. Additionally, he was out on bond for driving a stolen car. Okay, so let's just review the bidding here for a second, and your head can explode along with mine. You have a guy who's 19 years old who um, is out on bail for a charge of car theft, Get to that in just a couple minutes. Driving the stolen car, he has no driver's license. The car is stolen, and now he's involved in a fatal car crash. Hernandez faces five felonies and a misdemeanor, second-degree reckless homicide, fleeing, eluding an officer, knowingly causing a death while operating without a valid license, etc., etc. Police spotted a stolen Kia Sportage near Greenlee and Deer Place and activated their lights and sirens. Now, this is on July 28th, but the driver, that would be Hernandez, did not stop because he's driving a stolen car. He's out on bail for car theft. He doesn't have a valid license. A 10-minute pursuit ensued, lasting about nine miles and reaching speeds of up to 80 miles an hour. So these are down residential streets. This 19-year-old is going 80 miles an hour. Prosecutors say Hernandez, the driver, disregarded stop signs and traffic lights during the pursuit, nearly striking multiple vehicles. So again, you you can just picture what is going on here. Near 35th and Wisconsin, he did hit another vehicle. So 35th and Wisconsin, just a little bit past Marquette University. He did hit another vehicle, colliding with a Chevy, Chevy Equinox at 65 miles an hour. The Chevy driver suffered minor injuries. Okay, so, okay, picture Wisconsin Avenue, right? 35th in Wisconsin. What's the speed limit there? 25, maybe 30. He's driving 65 miles an hour down Wisconsin Avenue. The impact of the crash. So he, he smacks into a Chevy Equinox at 65 miles an hour. The impact of the crash sent the Kia, that's the stolen car, into a Honda Odyssey minivan, and the Kia rolled. The Honda driver had multiple surgeries at the hospital and was placed on a ventilator before ultimately passing away. According to prosecutors, the owner of the Kia reported it stolen on July 27th, the day before the pursuit and the crash, 
while it was parked on Kinnikinick Avenue. Hernandez, that is the guy driving the stolen vehicle who led the cops on a chase, has never had a valid driver's license. Additionally, he was out on bond at the time for operating a vehicle without the owner's consent. He received a $1,500 signature bond on that case in April. And, And by the way, a signature bond, for those of you who might not be familiar, you don't even have to put up a dime. All you have to do is you have to sign a piece of paper saying, I promise that if I don't show up for my next court appearance or I somehow otherwise violate the terms of my release, I promise I will pay $1,500. Now, of course, this this guy probably didn't have a you-know-what to you-know-what in, so $1,500, there's no way you were going to get it. But the point of the matter is that that bond was so ridiculously low that it, it didn't stop him from stealing another car or at least operating another stolen car, and then fleeing from the police. But here you have, again, the the flip side of that story, and unfortunately the story that happens more often than not. You have people who have no regard for anything, and certainly no regard for the rest of us, who commit crime after crime after crime, who are turned loose by the criminal justice system, put back out on the streets, and again, this is one of these classic examples of it, no deterrence at all, April, the guy's involved in stealing a car, and he's 18 or 19 at the time. He's released essentially on his own recognizance on a bond that he doesn't have to pay a dime for. It doesn't deter him. He goes out. He presumably steals another car and then leads the cops on a high-speed chase. And this time, the chase ends in a situation where after he bangs into a car, he slams into another one, and now you have someone who's dead as a result of this. Number one, it was somebody who should not be back out or have been out in the street in the first place on a ridiculously low bond. Number two, now what are we going to deal with? We've got someone who's dead. We've got a 19-year-old guy, Anthony Hernandez, who presumably, when he is convicted of this, is going to be spending the next 20 or 30 years in prison. At least I hope he spends the next 20 or 30 years in prison. So the taxpayer is going to have to pick up the tab for that. But this stuff happens on just a, a daily basis. And for everybody who cringes when I say it's time to double the prison population, this is what I mean. You have a certain criminal element that is out there who doesn't care. They're not scared of the system. They don't think anything bad is going to happen to them. You've got a justice system that reinforces that by turning them loose over and over again to commit new and more serious crimes. What we need to do is recognize that at least there's a certain segment of the population that we, we've got, and it's a small segment, but we've got to get them off the streets. And we've got to keep them off the streets because and we we got to hope that they will learn their lesson from from going to prison or jail because we know that not putting them in jail or prison doesn't help that doesn't get the message across and again this is another situation if this guy had not been released on a signature bond after his first car theft and had still been in custody awaiting trial, he wouldn't have been in a position to steal another car and now flee from cops and hit and kill somebody else. But because he was out on a stupid low bail, he was allowed and he was in a position to do this, somebody is dead. We've got to wake up and recognize that what we are doing now is not working, and it is putting all the honest, law-abiding citizens at risk. I don't know what time of the day that this ended up happening, this high-speed chase, but but it doesn't make any difference. You know, you, you should be able to, I don't know, 
be on 35th in Wisconsin and not have to worry that somebody driving 75 or 65 miles an hour is going to lose control of the car and get into an automobile accident. Shouldn't we expect that when we catch people who are driving without licenses, who are driving stolen cars, that we're going to at least do something to try to hold them accountable instead of turning them loose to let them do it all again. So this story is the flip side of what we talked about. In this case, as this happens more often than not, unfortunately, it is the innocent person who is the victim of the criminal behavior. The criminal shouldn't have been on the streets in the position to do this, though, in the first place. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of our texters says, well, don't you realize prisons are overcrowded already? Where where are we going to put these criminals? To which my response is easy. We're, we'll, we will build more prisons. I, I, I mean, let me, let me see a show of hands. When it comes to public safety, aren't we willing, I'm willing to bet that 80% of the, the people out there are saying, given all the things that our government just pees money away on, if, if it comes to public safety, you know, we're, we're going to support this. And we're tired of felons with guns just walking around on the streets and committing crimes and preying on people. We're tired of multiple car thieves running through red lights and hitting and killing people. You know, we, we want to stop that before it happens. And if that means that we've got to build more prisons with the idea that we're going to put dangerous people in there. So we're going to pass laws that say if you're a felon in possession of a firearm boom, you know, you're, you're going to go to prison for a mandatory three years or whatever that number might be. I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of people would support that. Now, ultimately, the hope would be that if you, you know, after the word gets out that we're not fooling around with this and that if you get caught with that gun and you're a felon or you get caught, again, leading the cops on a high-speed chase and you're going to be behind bars for a while, maybe once that word gets out, you won't have as many people that were doing it. But in the short term, I will freely acknowledge we have lost a generation, maybe two generations, of 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 at least certain people to, to crime. And the, the sooner or later, sooner or later, these hardcore criminals are going to be in prison. That, that's just the, the reality. So it seems to me that maybe we just need to address this now and let's try to let's try to hold people accountable at an earlier stage when, again, they get caught as the felon in possession of a gun until they take that gun and they shoot somebody in a parking lot in a stick up. I mean, that to me just makes sense. So, yeah, go go ahead. Build more prisons. I, I'm perfectly willing to run on that campaign platform if you also couple it with the notion that we're going to toughen the laws and we're, we're going to stop a lot of this this coddling that we do of criminals. And, and yeah, hopefully the word will get out and people will realize, well, okay, maybe this isn't the way to go. But short term, yeah, you're going to have to put more people in prison, and that means you're going to have to have more space for people in prison. But I think the majority of citizens are in favor of that. This, I understand, it's not politically correct. I understand it goes against some of the the woke theories that are out there. I understand that the people who are in favor of the defund the police, the Mandela Barnes of the world, are just appalled 
appalled at the idea that you would hold people accountable. I don't have any problem with that at all. I'm always going to stand on the side of law-abiding citizens who are being preyed on by criminals than the side of the criminals. I sent a um, sent a text out yesterday that got quite a reaction, and I I, I mean, I hate to say I told you so. Well, actually, that's not true. I, I don't mind saying I told you so. And this is a situation where I, I did absolutely tell you so. Last week, what was it, Monday, you had the search at, at President Trump, former President Trump's place at, at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And the agents, with much fanfare, took away a bunch of boxes. And there's been story after story about, well, did he violate the Espionage Act or, or whatever. I Merrick Garland on Thursday— The attorney general had a press conference which was disingenuous, I I think, at best, where he came out and said, well, we're we're, we're all about transparency. And so I have asked the courts to uh, allow me to release the search warrant, and I'm going to, you know, I I expect to hear from the former president about whether he objects it or not. Well, I called BS on that last Thursday because— The search warrant itself, as I tried to explain to people, is just – it's a cover sheet, and it says what they're looking for and and what they believe might be involved and where the violation of the law might be. The the thing that tells you what the probable cause is to support the search warrant – That's what's called the search warrant affidavit. And in a press conference that was like too clever by half, it was interesting, Merrick Garland never mentioned the search warrant affidavit. And I think a lot of people just assumed, if you hadn't worked in the federal system, that they were going to release everything. Well, they they didn't release everything. They they released the, the search warrant. And then they released some of the general items that were taken. But in order to evaluate whether or not this was a legitimate exercise of government discretion. That is, and it's not just a question of, is there probable cause to believe he had the records? But as I was saying, and I've been saying repeatedly, normally in what I'm going to call white-collar cases, the way this is resolved is you call up the other person's attorneys and you say, hey, I've got a subpoena for records, and you got to appear before the grand jury and produce these records. And if you don't produce the records, then you go in front of a judge, you get a contempt order. That's how you typically handle it. You don't go to people's houses with search warrants in your typical white-collar case. They, they haven't produced this particular record. That is an extreme position, especially when you are talking about a former president of the United States who might run for president again. And by the way, if you're a regular listener of this program, I'm not carrying water for Trump. I, I, I want I want former President Trump to go away. I think Republicans are much better if he just kind of recedes uh, away and uh, allows the Republican Party to move on. But, but that being said, to take the step of, of searching a former president's residence is – is an extreme sort of step. Maybe it's justified, maybe it's not. But you don't know that until you have a chance to look at the search warrant affidavit. And like I say, Garland, I think, was very clever and somewhat disingenuous in implying that they were going to make all this stuff available and then not. I mean, by just releasing the cover sheet of the search warrant, you put Trump in the worst possible light. Maybe he deserves to be in the worst possible light, but you don't show give any insight at all as to why 
they felt there was probable cause to do it, or why, more importantly, they thought there was the necessity of doing it. And again, remember, here in Wisconsin, we have a history of this. Remember a few years ago when you had John Chisholm and people with the State Department of Justice who were launched into this investigation of whether or not the Scott Walker campaign colluded with some of these um, outside interests or not. And instead of just asking for records, that they show up with armed state agents at six o'clock in the morning from some of these political consultants and they go through the doors. It was a completely unnecessary effort designed to intimidate some of these political consultants that if you had prosecutors who had an ounce of discretion, they would not have done it. I don't know what the justification for doing the search warrant was. Story in the Wall Street Journal says today that Merrick Garland agonized for weeks and weeks over this, which tells me that there, there wasn't an urgency to this. I mean, see, that's the question. If, if these records were, were so vital to national security, and you knew Trump had them for 18 months, what was it about last Monday that required you to go in then um, after he'd had them for, for 18 months. Now, again, maybe the search warrant demonstrates that. Maybe the affidavit has it. But the Merrick Garland Justice Department yesterday was very, very clear. They have no intention of making that search warrant affidavit public. And my point is, until you see the affidavit, nobody, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, nobody can make a fair evaluation of the decision that Merrick Garland did. And at least right now, the Department of Justice doesn't want you to see that particular document. All right, when we come back, the local media and Minnesota School Board. Interesting conversation. Stick around. Stay tuned. Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. I'm legitimately curious as to how you feel about this. Minneapolis has been sort of ground zero in a lot of the the woke social stuff because of that. Of course, that was where, you know, you had the George Floyd murder and um, that's where a lot of the defund the police movement started and things like that. And, And so... You know, Minneapolis, of all places, has been wrestling with this, again, the political correctness and the wokeness and how do we have racial equity and, you know, what do we do in a situation? Is the police department out of control? All these different things. So it's now being reported that as a condition of settling a teacher strike that occurred back in in March. Now, this this you might remember back in March, Minneapolis public school teachers ended up going on strike. They were on strike for a couple weeks. And now some of the details as to what they agreed to are, are now becoming public. And, and this is the story that I'm, I'm very, very interested in. Normally, when you are dealing with unions and layoffs, typically if somebody needs to be laid off, it is typically – the last in is the first out. I mean, that that's one of the, the big deal. It, it's seniority. Now, you can argue that seniority, you know, doesn't make any sense. That's one of the reasons that I think some people are, are kind of down on unions to begin with. It's just because you've just because you've, you know, been there 10 years as opposed to somebody who's been there five years. Does that necessarily mean that you're a better employee just because of seniority? But as a general rule, seniority is what rules. And so when you have to cut positions, if there's layoffs or whatever, you cut based on seniority. Starting next year, that is not how they are going to cut 
people if layoffs become necessary. That's not how they are going to do it in Minneapolis, sort of. The agreement says that if excess, this is the way they, they do, this is the lawyer speak, if accessing a teacher, that means if laying off, that's the word they use, if laying off a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site. So in other words, it is applying particularly to persons of color. So um, right now, the proportion, they, they don't have an equal number of, say, black teachers to white teachers. They've been trying to become more diverse, and they've been trying to increase the diversity, which is fine. So what they have agreed to is that if Laying off a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, in other words, a person of color, the district shall lay off the next senior teacher who is not a member of an unrepresented uh, population. So let's let me give you an example then. Let's say you've got to lay off 10 teachers for, for the sake of argument. You've got to lay off 10. And the five, mo- the ten most recent hires are five white teachers and five black teachers, in the most simple explanation possible. In that case, the five black teachers who are least senior will not be laid off. So the five white teachers who are least senior, they will be laid off, and the next five teachers laid off will be the white teachers who are somewhere in the seniority list, maybe the 11th through the 15th, if you see what I mean. So the idea is we are not going to lay off persons of color, and instead we will lay off more senior non-persons of color. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the justification for this is they say, look, we we don't have enough persons of color who are our teachers. Um, we have been aggressively trying to hire persons of color, so they tend to be the newer ones anyways, because that's been some of the, the products of our aggressive efforts. But, you know, if we're going to start laying off based on the, the last in, first out, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be laying off a lot of these per- persons of color that we've went out of our way to try to hire in the first place. So... If you happen to be a white teacher who has more seniority, sorry, we're going to bump you. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think about this as a concept that seniority matters except race trumps seniority? 855-616-1620. We discuss. More Jeff Wagner right after this. This is Jeff Wagner, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're just joining us, in order to settle a, a teacher strike a couple months ago, it's now becoming coming out that the Minneapolis School District has agreed to a layoff system based on on race, not seniority. Yeah, you, you heard me right. Normally, layoffs are based on seniority, first in, um, last in, first out. But in an effort to make up for what they say is past discrimination, if you are a person of color, underrepresented class, you are essentially immune from layoffs. So if they have to lay off 10 people, for example, and there's five people of color and five white teachers, the five white teachers go, the five newly hired 
persons of color stay, and the next five people that go are the more senior white teachers, 855-616-1620. And again, the school district says the purpose of this is to solve for past discrimination and say, okay, well, we, we didn't hire enough persons of color over the years, so this is the way that we're going to do it to try to keep them in the system. Now, if you're a young white teacher starting out or you're somebody that's got a couple years of experience, well, too bad, so sad. 855-616-1620, your, your reaction to this, and we'll take calls in just a minute. I guess my, my first thought is I can't imagine anything that is more blatantly discriminatory than, than this. The union, I guess, can agree to it. And I understand, I understand the value of having a diverse workforce and things like that. All I'm here to tell you is if I was a white teacher who was doing my job and had established some degree of seniority and suddenly I'm told, that I'm going to be laid off to because of somebody I'm going to be laid off not because of the job I'm doing I'm going to, I'm going to be laid off in favor of somebody who has less seniority than me simply because of the color of their skin I'm not going to be happy with that 855-616-1620 to me it, it's the very embodiment of reverse discrimination which by the way maybe demonstrates kind of the, the larger issue with the whole union mentality that you're you're not laying off people based on ability you're laying off people based solely on seniority this is affirmative action on steroids 855-616-1620, but the union agreed to it and the district agreed to it. Let's start with Dave. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, you kind of stole my thunder, but uh, to me, if it was the other way around, people would be up in arms. It's not even based on their performance. I just, uh, I, I think this is wrong. Well, it, yeah, it, it just blows me away. Now, thanks. Well, I mean, again, that that's that's sort of the reaction. And I understand. See, the justification is we want a diverse student body. We, we want diverse teachers to represent the diversity of our student body. And, and I understand that. And I think that's a noble goal to work towards. But th- this is this is pure, pure reverse racial discrimination because it's not evaluating the performance of the teachers in any way, shape or form. What it's doing is saying, okay, if you, as long as we've determined that we don't have enough of this type of teacher or that type of teacher in the system, well, what we're going to do is we're going to bump others in favor of that. And that's, I mean, I, I understand this kind of overall lofty concept, but maybe this demonstrates that the flaw in the, the whole public school education system, if you're going to base layoffs on on just seniority in general. Shouldn't we then be looking at, maybe we should be looking at, are they a good teacher? I mean, that, that's what I want. I mean, I don't care if you're black or white or brown or whatever. I want the best teachers teaching my kids. 855-616-1620. Uh, let's talk to Jack in Wauwatosa. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Actually, it's Waukesha, but yeah, I, I was telling your screener, I dealt with this in the military in the late 70s, early 80s. I worked hard to become a sergeant, and uh, there was an act that was, I think it was human race, race relations. Uh, you could not order uh, a person of uh, color, if you were white, to do something if they said you were picking on them or they didn't want to do it. So it, hmm. it was uh, frustrating. Well, yeah, it I mean. It led to me uh, getting out of the military. Well, I mean, no, no thanks for calling. I mean, I, I understand that, that, that frustration, and I'm trying to—look, uh, I, and I appreciate 
the, the idea of you want a diverse workforce. But if your rules are going to be we're, we're making the decision that people stay based on, on seniority, and that's the decision that we've had. How is this fair to the, the really, really good, young, up-and-coming white school teacher who's got maybe three years of seniority, who's you know, going to be a superstar at some point in time in, in the future, but they're going to get bumped because you have a, a black school teacher that, that's been there for a year, and, and maybe they're as good, maybe they're not. I, I don't know, but you don't even make that calculation because you just simply say, okay, we're going to do nothing but look at color of the skin. That, that I, mean, I mean, you want to talk about a reason to get your kids out of the Minneapolis school system, that, that's it. If this were, hey, we're going to up and the whole seniority system, and we're going to take a hard look when we're doing these layoffs, and, and we're going to look at teacher ratings, and, you know, we're going to get rid of some of the, the deadwood. We're, we've got 20, we maybe got, we have, maybe we've got teachers that have been teaching for 25 years, and they're just trying to put in their time before they, you know, they, they cash it out. And we all know that that happens in every sort of industry. But we're going to keep those people, but we're going to get rid of some of the younger teachers based solely, again, on the color of their skin. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Dave. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jeff, isn't that posted at every workplace that you can't discriminate against race, uh, like the federal poster? Doesn't that apply here or no? Well, I don't think—I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, it would be interesting. Now, this was an agreement. What you would need to do is you would need to have— some member of the union. This is a deal that the union cut with the the school district. So you would need to have an aggrieved teacher, I, I think, file a lawsuit and, and challenge this. And and maybe it, this doesn't kick in till next year with their uh, again with the new. Uh, and maybe that maybe that's what happens. Will happen. Maybe you'll have a a white school teacher who otherwise wouldn't be laid off, who now gets laid off, who will sue and allege that this is discrimination. How this plays in with the the affirmative action type of stuff, because that's that's what this is in many respects. It's like I say, it's affirmative action on on steroids. I, I don't I don't know how this will all play out, but it. At the same time, I got to admit, it just strikes me as as wrong. I have no problem at all with being aggressive with your outreach. You know, we're going to try to do everything we can to bring in as many persons of color into the teaching profession, et cetera, and we're going to try to nurture them, and, you know, hopefully this will be the next generation of teachers because we agree that a student body that, you know, looks out and sees, you know, people who are teaching that that look like them, that's in their benefit, I get all that, and I don't dispute it at all. But this is this pure discrimination where, you know, we're going to have a seniority system, except it's not a seniority system when it's just the color of— your skin. Jeff, is this color you, um, is this ever going to stop? It just keeps on and on. I, I can't imagine the frustration of this. Well, that's the, you know, that's the idea. Jeff, keeping somebody only based on the color of their skin is completely Racist. I think it's pathetic. Um, I have several public school teacher friends. Well, again, I, I think this would be an interesting dialogue to have, especially with some of the young, upcoming 
white teachers to say, okay, you know, you've been doing your job for four years, and now there's going to be layoffs, and and you're going to be on the top of the list, not because you're not doing a great job, not because you haven't gotten great reviews, but simply because you, you happen to have been born white, and we're trying to make up for historical discrimination. This, I think, I believe that Minneapolis is going to come to regret this particular policy, and I think a lot of the parents are going to come to regret it. And it's, again, maybe... Maybe the real story here is maybe we shouldn't be doing layoffs based on seniority. Maybe we should be looking at the best inability, regardless of how long that you've been there. But that's not the way the union stuff is set up. If I was a white teacher who was a member of this union, I would not be happy at all, especially a younger white teacher. Now, the majority of the teachers are, of course, beyond the. They probably got too much seniority, so they don't have to worry about this. They're not going to be in the first 20 that goes or whatever. But if I was a younger, up-and-coming, non-person of color who was doing a great job teaching in the system, I think I'd be sending out my resumes. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The coaches, the athletes, the volunteers, and of course, the joy that comes with it all. This is what you get with Special Olympics Wisconsin. Join Vince Vitrano as he leads our next WTMJ Cares effort. On August 22nd, you can bid on items that benefit Special Olympics Wisconsin. Just text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line to get a link to the great items that will be available. WTMJ Cares is sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. One call, that's all. I just, This is a code. I, I, I get all these different texts, and I, I don't have a chance to respond to all the texts, but some people just don't understand how the world works. Jeff, layoffs everywhere are seniority-based, not just unions. Clearly, you are missing some details of the real-world workforce, to which my response was, no, layoffs in the private sector are not always based on seniority. My late wife, who was a management employment attorney, spent decades working with companies that she worked with when they were doing layoffs in determining how they were going to do the layoffs. And seniority is the easiest way to do it, but but that's not the way in the private sector. If you don't have a union agreement, there's there, there's a lot of discretion that exists. And if you're not going to do it based on seniority, you have to be careful that you're not discriminating against a certain class of people or violating age laws or things like that. But the reality is in the real world, Layoffs in the private sector are not always based on seniority. And in Wisconsin, as a matter of fact, under Act 10, I'm not even sure in the government that they're they're based on, on seniority. I think there's probably a lot of discretion that goes there. My only point with the overall issue here is if you're going to have a system that bases it on layoffs based on seniority, what you should do is you should follow it. And it should be layoffs based on seniority, not an asterisk saying, unless you happen to be a member of this particular class or that particular class. All right. WTMJ News Time is 1.30 p.m. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is one of the interesting aspects of of watching TV in a modern time because, again, when, when you have big events, and, and I, look, I understand that there's some people, what is this better call, Saul TV show, and why do we care about it? But, but for people who are wrapped up in the world of Breaking Bad and then the TV show Better Call Saul, which, 
Again, that ended after a six-year run yesterday with its finale. It is stuff that people are talking about at the water cooler. So how do you deal with that if you're like Alex, where you didn't get a chance, you really wanted to watch it, you talked about wanting to watch it, and then, you know, life happened, so you haven't seen it. He was telling me he's got all his notifications muted. He's trying as best he can to stay off the Internet and avoid some of those those sites because, again, it's a cultural phenomenon. And I, I will tell you this, if you— if you go to a lot of distant websites that are out there, whether it's major newspapers or whatever, you're going to see headlines that may, in fact, give it away. So the question is, how how long do you avoid doing it? My producer, Isaac, just said to me, well, you know, I, I, I'm way behind on this. And so I would appreciate it if you guys don't talk about the ending to Better Call Saul tomorrow because I, I, I won't be able to work my way through it. And I will try to honor that to the best I, I can. But th- this is it is one of these interesting things as to how long you let this go on. I was trying to think during the break of the show, but there was there was a show that ended, and it had been at least a couple months, and I had made no reference to it. And then somehow it had been out there for a couple months, and I made reference to the, the ending of this, and I get like a half dozen hostile texts from people saying, you've just given it away. And, and to which, I mean, look, I understand a day or two. At some point in, in time, you know, you, you kind of got to kind of get with the program. You know, it's at some point in time, and I don't know whether the leeway is 24 or 48 or 72 hours or whatever, but at some point in time, the, the world moves on. And if you haven't seen I don't know if if you haven't seen Gone with the Wind. I, I'm sorry, I don't I don't mean to give away the ending, but you know tomorrow's going to be another day. Rhett Butler leaves her. I mean that's just kind of how that this ends up happening. Rosebud was the sled in C- Citizen Kane. I in in The Godfather. You know Vito Corleone dies. I'm sorry. At some point in time, you just got to kind of keep up with popular culture. But nowadays, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, with the internet, if if you want to not find out how things happened. You really either have to get into a cave or just kind of like sort of get with the the program. But I I will do my best to not give away spoilers to Better Call Saul, at least for the next day or two. But bottom line is it did end, and hopefully you get a chance to watch it in the next day or two. I um, Over the years I've been doing this program, I, I, I used to make a bigger deal about mainstream media bias um, and and then just the kind of laughable response that you would would get. Oh, there's no bias at all, which was just absolutely ridiculous. The bias in the, the stories that you choose to cover, and then also the, the bias that you get in themes. And I, I just, I mean, I stopped talking a lot about it because I got to the point of, well, what's the point? I mean, it's just, it's just out there. And especially if you're a conservative, you you live with this. Now, believe me, I I understand why there was so much hostile coverage, for example, of Donald Trump, because Trump kind of brought it on. Trump antagonized the media. Media never viewed him as legitimate, and then he antagonized the media, and so, you know, he said, you know, here, I'm going to draw this line in the sand, and dare you to step over it, and they did, and so you had this hostile sort of thing, and the truth of the matter is, it, it also helped sell newspapers and get clicks on on websites. I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post during the Trump years, just they, they did box office business because they were the anti-Trump, like newspapers, for example. So all those people that hated Donald Trump, I mean, they went to the, the New York Times. And that's why nine out of every 10 stories that you saw involving Trump were, were involved from a perspective of, 
here Trump is is just awful. He's the worst thing in in the world. And that was the perspective that they had because it helped sell newspapers and generate clicks. I mean, MSNBC thrived during the Trump years because people flocked to MSNBC because, okay, this is where we can see on a nightly basis all the the Trump hatred's going to be. Well, Trump is gone, and MSNBC's numbers have, you know, just pretty much cratered. So there there is this bias that is out there. Part of it, I think, is reflected in just the political opinions of the people who cover this. Part of it is just, well, just it's the the role that, um, you know, people adopt. Now, locally, it seems to me that I think more so than in a while, you seem to have some local media outlets that are completely invested in trying to, number one, get Tony Evers reelected, and number two, get Mandela Barnes elected. And for example, if you read the local newspaper, on almost a daily basis, there will be, it's almost the anti-Republican story du jour. And I will be the first to acknowledge that Republicans in Wisconsin have done some really dumb things that deserve to be criticized. And I I haven't shied away from that criticism, that the Michael Gableman, you know, the Wall Street Journal talks about it as a snipe hunt today. You know, the the, the Michael Gableman, you know, search for election fraud, that, that deserves to be criticized. There's just no way that you can spin it. Some of the obsession that, for example, some people have had with, oh, the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I've been arguing for the last year and a half, it's time to move on. But that doesn't change the fact that it seems that there's all this effort to try to almost manufacture stories that paint Republicans in bad light. And it's it's always been bad, but it seems like it's getting worse. The theme right now is the Republic the, the Democrats are completely united and the Republicans are in disarray. They, they wrote a story the other day about how well you know it's the Republicans are going to have to have a hard time here after a contested primary putting back the the party. To which I I say, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know who they're talking to, but I think, you know, whether, for example, in the Republican primary for governor, there were people that supported Rebecca Clayfish. There were people that supported Tim Michaels. I don't get any sense at all that among rank-and-file Republicans or even institutional Republicans, there's people aren't willing to support and campaign for Tim Michaels. As I've been saying all along, there's really no— policy difference between the two of them. But yet that's the the approach that the media take. Well, we don't know if they can unite. And then there is a genuinely stupid story that appears, well, at least in the online edition, and, and it's today's version of, okay, what can what story can we manufacture to make Republicans look bad? Here is the headline written by Corrine Hess. Wisconsin's Republican governor candidate, Tim Michaels, noticeably absent from weekend campaign events. Members of the Wisconsin GOP party ticket spoke Sunday at the Republican Party of Dane County's Lincoln Day Reagan dinner, but the man at the top of the ticket was noticeably um, absent. Since winning the Republican gubernatorial primary on August 9th, which was last Tuesday, Michaels has made only one public appearance at the state fair. Um... Okay, and then it goes on to talk about how campaign staffers were all over the state, but the story is, well, Michaels wasn't campaigning, and he didn't do this particular event. The story way down adds also that Tony Evers wasn't campaigning last weekend. He was celebrating his wedding anniversary. But I'm looking at this story, and it's like, what? I mean, you want to talk about trying to manufacture this story. So here's the bottom line. Tim Michaels— 
wins the Republican primary on Tuesday. And I, I don't know what he did for the next couple days, but if he took a couple days off, it wouldn't be the end of, of the world. I mean, the election is in early November. You're going to have September, October. You're going to have a lot of intense time on the campaign trail. And the fact that Tim Michaels decided to skip a, a Lincoln Day dinner. They have their 72 Wisconsin counties. I don't know how many he was at, but my guess is he was at a lot of them. The, the, the fact that Tim Michaels decided, for whatever reason, to skip a Lincoln Day dinner a couple days after he wins the primary, this is a story that this, that you devote, oh gosh, 50, 60 paragraphs to? You know, I mean, really? Is it possible that maybe it's, you know, it was a long primary campaign and he wanted to take a couple days off? Or... You know, he was in meetings and raising money, and he was in meetings with his advisors or whatever, figuring out what we're going to do over the next couple months. But you got to understand that the attitude among some, particularly in the local print media, is we have to figure out how to trash these people. We have to try to figure out what the story is going to be. So the story today is Tim Michaels was noticeably absent from campaign events on the weekend. Well, he had his team all over the state. They were marching in parades and stuff. And no, he wasn't at the Lincoln Day dinner. Don't exactly know what he was doing, but what is the point? You know, he's been involved in a lengthy primary campaign. It will be interesting to see, okay, what is the coverage of Tony Evers' campaign going to be or Mandela Barnes' campaign going to be? If they are gone for a day or two from the campaign trail, are we going to say stories about, gee, do they lack vigor? What exactly is going on here? But when it's a Republican, you you get this stuff. It's a complete and total nothing burger that that turns into this story. Again, it's the, the, the plot line is going to be Republicans are in disarray or there, there's some mystery. Tim Michaels wasn't at the Dane County Lincoln Day dinner. Well, no, he was, probably had other stuff to do or maybe he just wanted to take the weekend off before the next 10 weeks of extensive campaigning. And for anybody who might be worried that um, he wouldn't be on the campaign trail, my understanding is he was down here um, campaigning at one of the minor league baseball uh, stadiums just yesterday. I am willing to bet reliably that when it comes to vigor on the campaign trail, if that's going to be the standard, um, I'm, I'm willing to bet that the Tim Michaels will be as vigorous, if not more vigorous, than Tony Evers when it comes to being out and about and campaigning, despite the fact that he's noticeably absent from weekend campaign events. Non-story of the day, what will be the negative Tim Michaels, Ron Johnson story in the paper tomorrow? Well, well, wait, there will be one. There will be one. We just don't know what it's going to be as of yet. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Get that passport ready. WTMJ is sending you on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see the green and gold play in London. You could qualify for this amazing trip to London, including airfare, hotel stay, transportation, and two tickets to the game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tune into Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 710 for your chance to win. It's the Great Britain Giveaway, only on 620 WTMJ. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. One of our texters said, well, there, you know, there you go. You know, you're, you're, you're making good points, but then you, you know, you're, you're, you have to rip Republicans. Well, <clears throat> look, I, I try to call it like I see it. 
I, I think there's an incredible bias against conservatives and Republicans that are out there. But at the same time, I, I think you have to recognize that, for example, in Wisconsin, the, the, the investigation that Michael Gableman was allowed to conduct over the course of the last year, it, it needed to be reined in. It was out of control. And it was appropriately the subject of, of criticism. The Wall Street Journal has a piece on this today, and I just this will probably be the last thing we say about the Gableman investigation. But here's what it says. This is the headline of the story. Wisconsin's 2020 election fraud snipe hunt is over. And again, this is the Wall Street Journal editorial board. And to the extent that there is – from a conservative perspective, to the extent that there is an editorial page that people pay attention to, this is it. Subheadline: Mike Gableman did not find mass cheating, and the focus is now in focus now is November. After narrowly de- defeating a Donald Trump-backed primary challenger last week, Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is pointing the way back to reality and maybe a victory this fall. On Friday, he fired Special Counsel Mike Gableman, whose interminable inquiry into the 2020 election failed to prove much at all while costing taxpayers more than a million dollars. Let's see. It's time for us to move on, Voss said. He did a good job last year and kind of got off the rails this year, and now we're going to end the investigation. We're going to focus on winning the election so that the bills that we passed, which are ready to go fix problems that were discovered, can be signed into law hopefully next year. Wall Street Journal says this is the right line, politically and factually. President Trump lost Wisconsin in 2020 because he lagged the state's five Republican congressmen by 63,547 votes. President Biden ran ahead of Democrats in these districts by 64,880 votes. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of Republicans who voted for a Republican congressman chose either not to vote or they voted for Biden. Wall Street Journal writes, the brute fact is that a decisive number of Republicans didn't want four worries of Mr. Trump. In some suburban wards, 10.5 percent of ballots for Mr. Biden went GOP for Congress. Yeah, there, there was ballot switching. State officials deserve criticism for stretching Wisconsin's voting laws, such as by authorizing drop boxes. Yet there's no justification for trying to decertify the 2020 result, even if it weren't constitutionally impossible, as Mr. Voss says. Beyond the obvious holes in the Gableman report, Mr. Gableman hurt his credibility with forays into partisan politics. Recently, he recorded a robocall urging voters to join President Trump and me in defeating Mr. Voss. Off the rails, indeed. Um, When he was appointed, Mr. Gableman insisted we were not challenging the results of the 2020 election while promising to be guided by facts, not personality. The fight now, and this is the key, the money paragraph, and it's what I think everybody needs to focus on moving forward. The fight now is that Mr. Voss and the legislature are passing bills to strengthen Wisconsin voting system. And Democrat Governor Tony Evers keeps vetoing them. Mr. Evers's Republican challenge in, challenger in November, Tim Michaels, would be wise to follow Mr. Voss's lead and focus on ideas that unite the GOP, not unsubstantiated fraud theories that divide even Republicans. The end of Mr. Gableman's snipe hunt is a turn towards what matters in 2022 and 2024. I have been saying that for the better part of, of the last year. The election in November— is going to be determined by by issues like 
pocketbook issues. How do you feel about the economy? How do you feel about the inf- inflation? How do you feel about your jobs? It's going to be determined in some parts of the state about issues like crime. Do you feel safe and secure? It's going to be issues about the schools. I mean, how do you feel about the way COVID was handled in the schools? How do you feel about, you know, local control? How do you feel about state control? It's going to be schools. It's going to be crime. It's going to be the economy. It's going to be a few other issues. And the more the candidates on both sides of the aisle focus on that, especially given the fact that you have just diametrically opposed visions. You know, as I said before, you know, Mandela Barnes is essentially a socialist, and then you've got Ron Johnson, who is anything but. You, you could not have a bigger disparity in worldviews than that. And, and you know, Ron Johnson needs to focus on explaining to the state of Wisconsin what Mandela Barnes is and where he is on various issues um, and where Ron Johnson is on issues. Tim Michaels is the same. There are issues that are out there, but these are the ones that are going to be driving voters' decisions, and they're going to be the ones that I think politicians need to focus on, not, again, what the Wall Street Journal describes as a snipe hunt. When we come back, I want to talk about the latest developments involving Northridge and farewell to an institution. Stick around. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show, to Channel Winston Churchill. It's not the beginning of the end, but maybe it is the end of the beginning. Yesterday, there was a court appearance involving the former Northridge Shopping Center, and we, we've, we've talked about this. It, it's, we've gone over this infinitum, but when I was a kid growing up in Glendale, Northridge was a big deal. It, it has fallen into complete and total disrepair. It was purchased... Um, by a, a company called Black Spruce Enterprises. And the, the, the promises were always, well, we're going to turn this, this, this huge shopping center, we're going to turn it into an Asian trademark. Well, I, I don't know if, if that was ever really in the plans. But if it was, it, it just economic situations just made it completely irrelevant. There, people, people don't build giant enclosed malls anymore. That's just not what they do. And Northridge Mall has fallen into complete re- disrepair. The, the estimates were, and this is before, this is about a year ago, before four major fires that have broken out there, the estimates were that it would cost in excess of six million dollars, maybe between six and twelve million dollars, to turn it to to restore it. Now I'm sure it's a lot more than that. Bottom line is that the value is almost negligible. The city has been trying to tear it down. The group has been fighting them for reasons I still don't ex- understand, unless they're they're trying to force the city to buy it from them and pay more than it's worth. I I don't exactly know what's going on. But, you know, we had the fire chief on last Thursday. He's frustrated because there's, I I believe it's kids from the nearby areas who keep breaking in and setting fires. And, you know, anytime there's a fire, the fire department has to show up and there's a temptation just to let it burn. But they've got to go in. They've got to make sure that there aren't people in there. It's it's just a it's just a mess. Meanwhile, that this ownership group does does nothing. So there was a hearing yesterday, and the judge said, "Well, here's the deal: you have until Friday to secure the property." 
and that means you know you got to put in um, you know fire prevention systems, and you've got to provide 24-hour security personnel and all this different stuff, and you've got to clean it out. You 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 could not do it in a week anyhow. I mean, it, it's sort of one of these kind of academic kind of orders because you couldn't do it anyways. It, it would also cost you at least hundreds of thousands of dollars right away. And this company has showed no interest in putting a dime into this place over the last 20 years. So suddenly they're going to take half a million dollars and bring in bulldozers and clear it out. It, it's not going to happen. So if they don't do it by Friday, they're looking at $2,000 a day in contempt orders, which is is, is all well and good. But I'm not sure they have any intention of of paying that. Bottom line is there's another hearing scheduled on tearing it down, and that's not going to occur till early October. So you still have to go through the rest of August and September. But at some point in time, since this company isn't going to put a dime into it, since it's going to continue to deteriorate, there's no question in my mind that at some point in time, it should have happened years ago, but, but Northridge... What we know is Northridge, that that site is going to be leveled, and we're going to be looking at some other use for that, which is what I want to talk about now, because now is the time to kind of be forward-looking. And what, what brought Northridge to its knees was both the reality and the perception that it, it was crime-plagued. And there were a lot of things that happened. You had a guy named Jesse Anderson who, if you're not familiar with this and didn't live there at the time, he claimed that his wife was murdered by a couple black kids, I think is what he said, outside of TGIS. Well, he had actually murdered the, the, his wife herself, himself. But what ended up happening is it created this perception that you can't go there because you're going to get attacked. Um, there, there were, I think, some problems with crime as well. The neighborhood started changing. Suburban women stopped shopping there. Uh, businesses that catered to the suburban women, they started closing, and it started this death spiral that led to the demise of Northridge. So you you have this this huge property that starts on 76th and, and Brown Deer. I firmly believe that sometime in the next few months, it will finally be torn down. So then the question is, what do we do with it? What, what if anything, would work there? Now, before you call in and say, you know, build a youth prison there. I think that ship has already sailed. The The, the state, uh, with the blessing of the Common Council, looks like they're ready to go ahead and build a new youth prison, which I think is long overdue, and um, to, to house, like, all the, the youthful juvenile delinquents from Milwaukee. The site that they're looking at for that is actually pretty close to the Northridge site. It's 7930 West Clinton Avenue. Clinton Avenue is a small street on Milwaukee's north side. If you picture 76th and Good Hope, and you go a, a little bit north on 76th Street, that Clinton Avenue is is right there. It's at the site of like one of these old auto testing places. So the state owns that that property. It's kind of, if you remember where they had the old Northtown theaters, um, and then there used to be like Johnson's Skate Park and stuff like that. It, it's on that street. It's on the other side of the street, kind of right across from where the old Northtown theaters were. If you can picture that, then it's a couple blocks in. So that's going to be the site of the youth prison. And I think it's it's pretty much set with that, which means that's not going to be a consideration for, for Northridge. But once they tear down Northridge, which I think finally is going to happen in the next couple months, the question is going to be, what would work there? Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What would you like to see 
go in at the site that we commonly know as Northridge? And and what, I guess even more importantly, what do you think would work there? Is it even possible to try to revive that area? Maybe not into the hay, into its heydays of the late 70s and early 80s, but is there something that could go in there? And again, don't say prison because that's not going to happen. I want to have a real kind of factual, reality-based thing. What could they do there? What would you like to see them do there? What do you think a private investor, for example— if there's a private investor out there, what do you think would be appropriate for that area? 855-616-1620. I've got some ideas, but I'm curious about yours. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, I, I think <clears throat> Northridge Shopping Center, which is now a decrepit, blighted building. I think sooner than rather than later, it is going to be torn down. It's going to be raised probably not as soon as it should happen. But my guess is by the end of the year, boom, it's going to be leveled. The next question is, what do you put there in its place? And a number of people are continuing to say youth prison. I I think that ship has sailed. They're they're looking at putting a youth prison uh, a couple miles to the south, sort of off of Calumet and 76th Street. So youth prison is going to be in that area, but it's not going to be on that site what would you like to see, and what do you think would work at that Northridge site? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, nice music to accompany <laughs> things by with, Jeff. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, green space. Um, you know, you might have, I guess you could say, your bean counters throwing their arms up in the air saying, no, 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 you can't do that to our tax rolls. But if you look at um, large municipalities around country uh green space is a premium that you know 20 years from now somebody's going to say gee what a genius idea there may be some blowback now but um could you think of a better way to improve the environment for the city of milwaukee milwaukee county so you're talking about like turning it into like a giant like a giant park or something like that well you can use the word giant or how about we just say a park and i don't mean swimming pool or anything that's going to take uh, additional resources as a maintenance issue but just green space, just a just a park, correct? Okay, no, thank, thanks for going. No, and I would, you know, I mean that that's a that, that's a huge chunk of land where that that's occupied. So, um, I, I guess the question is for if you're trying to bring, and by the way, I'm not against green space, but for if you're trying to revitalize a, a community, you, you know, green space. That that's not going to be a driver, and I'm not against against green space, and and maybe maybe if you were looking at something, you know, you could incorporate some green space in. Now, a couple of people are saying what they would like to see is they would like to see the, the city work on the model of like the Drexel Town Center in, in Oak Creek or the. the what is it they call the commons out in in Brookfield and, and some sort of mixed use housing and retail and commercial coupled with with green space. Now, that's that's worked. Drexel Town Center, I think, is a huge success down on the south side, and clearly the, the corners out where you've got the Vaughn Mar in, in Brookfield, that's worked. I, I don't—I I have reservations because I guess there, there's only so much retail that you can have, and I, I think the predominant concerns about that, that area right now— 
that brought Northridge to its knees early on. I'm not sure that they've gone away. And I guess I'm trying to think of, you know, if would you could you find a developer and could you find stops? And, and even if you, you built something along the lines of, well, what they're trying to do at Bayshore, you know, Bayshore Town Center or something like that, would something like that go over in that area? Could you get over the concerns about crime and stuff like that in the area? Could you attract, again, those suburban shoppers? I, I'm not sure you're there yet. Now, obviously, that would be a great alternative if you could work it out. Somebody says, Jeff, I think the site is ideally located for a transportation and logistics park. Jeff, I think it should be devoted to low-income housing and housing for the homeless. Well, okay, that might be well and good, but that's, again, that, that's not going to renovate that, that area. Jeff, use part of it for vocational training fed by high schools in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Washington and Ozaki County and uh, um, other programs. Um, let's see, Jeff, how about a Strauss meat plant? Well, boy, I tell you, I think they're already set on staying in Franklin. But, yeah, Jeff, I think we probably need two youth prisons. Well, that, that could be the idea. Um, let's see, Jeff, I would use it for senior living. Jeff, I would use it for vocational housing. Um, all these all these great ideas. Uh, Jeff, many homeless shelter, many homes. Uh, see, that I, I don't think that that's the location for that. I think— If you are going to try to revive that area, you have to figure out how can we bring businesses in. And I just, I don't think retail is going to work right now at that stage. My suggestion would be I think it is ideal for, again, some sort of light industrial use, some sort of manufacturing use. And then if you can get some companies there, because of the location, and it's 70, it's a little bit landlocked, but you, you know, you, you still have access on Brown Deer Road to the freeways and things like that. You, if you can get some light industrial use, then what can happen is if you bring people back, then, you know, once you, you might see some of the businesses to support the, the, the light industrial, you know, some restaurants might come back into that area, some other stores to service the people that are working on a daily basis out there. So I guess my... I think you got to be focusing on light industrial. I mean, I appreciate some of the other ideas. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my, my uh, you know, to turn around and put little stores out there, that's not going to happen because, you know, they're, they're robbing that area like crazy. So many people are being robbed and, you know, the stores and everything like that. I think that you know it would have to be almost a light industrial, or it would have to be uh, you know like single family homes. Because if you put apartments out, you're going to have gangs, and the more yeah. gangs you got, the more, the the, the most uh, it's not going to yeah. be very desirable. You know? Yeah, no, I, I turn around and put something up. No, I put up something like they got in Oak Creek. There, that's totally different. You know? Yeah, I do. That'd be totally a. You know, yeah, I, I agree with him. Mean, thanks. I mean, I, I think what they have at Drexel Town Square or the Commons, I, I think that that's beautiful, and I'm thrilled to see it taking off. I, 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 I like what they're doing with Bayshore. I hope that works. I just don't think it would work in the real world in Northridge right now. One of our texts says, another retail housing office complex such as Bayshore or the corners in Brookfield will flop. It needs to be something that the criminal element will not find that attractive. I, again, to me, and, and I'm, I'm trying to deal in the real world here. And I understand that there might, I mean, it was kind of like this, this, you know, black spruce entertainment that says we're going to 
turn this into an Asian trade mall, and here are our plans. It's like, oh, give me a break. That was never, ever, ever going to happen. Or maybe even if there was some good faith thinking that it was going to happen back in the day, it, it th- that, that would not have worked. And I think they concluded that it wouldn't work. I think you need to have a complete reimagining of that. And to me, the best thing you could do out there is, again, try to encourage some sort of industrial stuff, some light industrial things. Um, Try to bring some businesses out there because you've got a lot of space. You can probably give it away for almost nothing. Attract some people and try to revitalize that area because it desperately needs being revitalized. Then if you can get some good businesses and some good industry there, like I say, then other things start to follow it. Maybe you'll see the restaurants. Maybe you'll see some um, more commercial or maybe even some retail development. But the first thing you need to do is kind of reclaim that area. And it's not going to be an easy task. And so I, I don't envy the, the people in the city that are responsible for doing it. But if, if you're thinking residential, eh. if you're thinking retail, eh. don't think that's going to happen. I think you have to focus on some sort of manufacturing, try to provide some incentives to have companies locate out there and then take it one step at a time. But again, it's it's a baby step. I'm not sure what happened yesterday. Like I said, it's not the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. We all agree that the sooner that those buildings get leveled, the sooner you move on to whatever plan B is going to be, the better it's going to be for the community. It's just a damn shame that, that this that building was allowed to fall into disrepair. It's just a damn shame that the whole thing happened. And I, I speak from the perspective of somebody who used to love going to Northridge. But time to completely reimagine this. Back with more in just a minute. More Jeff Wagner right after this. I, during the break, I was teasing news guy Alex Crow because he was talking about monkeypox. And I said, I, I mean, in fact, I sent this out on, on Twitter a day or two ago, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But there was a um, the World Health Organization ha- has now decided that we are not supposed to refer to monkeypox as monkeypox because somebody somewhere may somehow take offense. But I'm, I'm glad to see here that we're still referring to things as, as monkeypox because that's what people understand it to be. I rhetorically asked in my tweet, you know, what, what's, what's next? We can't call monkeypox monkeypox. Can we have chickenpox? I mean, for all of us who had chickenpox when we were kids, should we be offended by that? Can the new generations not get chickenpox? What about the swine flu? You know, if, if you catch the swine flu, will you be offended? Charlie horses. I mean, is that offensive to horses to be thought of as Charlie? Is it offensive to people known as Charlie to to be linked to horses? I mean, where do we draw the line, he asks rhetorically. As far as I'm concerned, monkeypox is monkeypox. And simply because somebody somewhere may somehow take offense, it doesn't mean that we don't call it what it has been called to and referred to for the longest time. All right, two interesting closings um, just being reported. The... um, I am, let me kind of back into this topic, I am old enough to remember when Milwaukee had three giant functioning breweries, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, about uh, microbrews or things like that. I, I remember when we had, you, we had Schlitz, and you had Pabst, and you had Miller. And, and these, these were kind of the glory days, and, and each of them employed lots and lots of people, and they had great beer tours. And I, I can remember when I was, I don't know, in college and stuff during the summers, we would, 
you, you could spend an entire day touring breweries, and you would start at the Schlitz Brewing Company. I think we would a lot of times we'd start at Pabst, and you'd, you'd start at Pabst, and then you know you tour Pabst, and you'd sit in their beer garden, and you'd have a couple free beers. Then you'd go over to Schlitz, and you'd, you'd go through Schlitz. Schlitz actually put you on a bus to take you to different places, and then at Schlitz you would come back, and you would end up at at the Schlitz. Um, hospitality center, which was known as the the Brown Bottle, and then you know after that, then we drive over to Miller, and you'd you'd go and you'd take the the Miller tour. It was a great way to spend a day, just a a great way to spend a day, especially if you had a designated driver. The Brown Bottle, which again it was the the old hospitality center at 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 uh, Schlitz, that has been opened and closed <clears throat> on on various. Occasions, um, because they've tried on multiple occasions to try to open it up as as a restaurant. It's it's in kind of a tougher location because it's where the the um, it's where you know it's in Schlitz Park in downtown Milwaukee, but it, it's not really easily accessible, and it, it's it's not really a destination. I mean, I guess you could go there, but it pretty much depends on the the businesses, you know, support from the businesses in in Schlitz. Park and the workers coming there. Well, I mean, it's been open, closed, open, closed. I, I think it's a great place. It's a historic place. They've got an outdoor patio. I've been there on a couple occasions. My very close friend, Evan, he, he loves to go there. So we, we've been there, but admittedly, probably not in the last couple of years. Um, they've just announced that the Brown Bottle is once again, it, it's closing. Um, it had been closed, reopened in 2014, then reopened again in July of 2021. But it's, again, it's it's, it depends on – it's one of those businesses, like I say, that depends on traffic from you know businesses around there, and, and COVID has kind of taken care of that. So the Brown Bottle is closing. But again, it's, it's sort of unfortunate because it's a, it's a great place steeped with history. The other bar-slash-restaurant that announced its closing in the last 24 hours is the Milwaukee Ale House on 233 North Water Street. Now, if you can picture this, picture downtown Milwaukee – and and picture, okay, you know, you got Water Street. This, uh, the Milwaukee L House was, I, I think, one of the the first when it opened twenty five years ago. It was one of the very first businesses that re that that opened in what has now become the revived Third Ward area. It, it's on Water Street, so if you can picture. Uh, like the Milwaukee, you got Wisconsin Avenue, and then you've got Michigan, then you've got Clybourne, then you kind of go under the freeway and stuff, and then you have uh, you got the Milwaukee Public Market, and on the other side of the street, a couple blocks down, you have the Milwaukee Ale House. It's been there for 25 years, but when the Milwaukee Ale House first opened up, it was there, there weren't too many other businesses that were in the Third Ward. And actually, I think you'd make an argument that the Third Ward was kind of depressed at that point in time. And what you did is the owners, that they, they started, I don't want to say it's the first brew pub in the area because it really wasn't, but they started brewing beer there. They got a couple um, federal small business grants and stuff and, and really had a lot of initiative. And they started brewing beer at the site of the Yale House, and then they turned it into a restaurant and things like that. And, and ultimately, uh, they outgrew that space, and it became Milwaukee Brewing, and they moved to a different location. But the announcement is that after 25 years, the Milwaukee Ale House, right along the river in the Third Ward, is is closing. Um, I think 
part of it is that it leases its space, and the people that own the buildings, the reports are, have decided to dramatically jack up the, the rent, which is one of the, the ironies. I'm, I'm a free market guy, so don't criticize landlords for, for getting what they can. But I, I do remember back back in the day when the Milwaukee Yale House first located there, I, like I say, this was this was not prime real estate at all. And the people that, that took the lease and went out on a limb to try to build the brew pub and the restaurant, they were really taking some substantial risks. And my guess is you're pretty much giving away space. Well, now the third ward has become hot. There's all that area and there's all that development and they think they can get more money, but apparently they, they jacked up the lease substantially. And so the, the folks that operate the Yale House just, I think, sort of made the decision that, well, this it just doesn't work for us anymore. I don't know what's going to be going in there. The owners say that hopefully it's not goodbye forever. It's just goodbye for now, trying to keep option the open, the option that maybe there, there could be a, a new location. But that has been such a fixture in downtown Milwaukee, particularly in the Third Ward, for 25 years. And it's one of those places that you just I got to admit, even though it's been a little while since I've been there, you kind of always thought that it was going to be there. And now you've got that that huge within a three or four block area in the third ward. You've got just wonderful restaurants and some bars that have opened up. And now it's a thriving scene. And the Yale House was really the, the leader of that. And now they are ending up closing. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We do topics like this from time to time. We tend to I think take some of these places for granted, these places that have just, just been there forever, whether it's the brown bottle. And again, the brown bottle's always been it's, – it's been a touchier sort of thing just because the location is off the beaten track and they've closed and opened and closed and opened. The Milwaukee Yale House, though, has been an institution for going on three decades now, and they're announcing that they're closing, I think, in a few weeks. Our number is 855-616-1620. A place – a bar, a tavern, a restaurant um, that, that you just thought was always going to be there, and you were surprised when it closed. Let's take a walk down memory lane, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, I'm partially guilty for this, but again, I don't think it's I don't think it's a lack of patronage that's happening with the Milwaukee Yale House. I just think it's a matter of financing. But I think it's unfortunate that this place is ending up closing. All right, a place that you really miss, 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Quality furniture that... Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, the Milwaukee Yale House, which twenty five years ago was, I, I believe, it was the, one of the leading buildings, leading businesses, one of the first businesses that went into the third ward at the time, before the third ward was what we what it has become. And they've just announced they're closing. Apparently, the landlord jacked up the rates and rents, and they're, they're ending up, they're moving out. And it really is kind of the end of an era. We're talking about you know, places that you just, you miss. Dave, Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Your place. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Your place. John Ernst. 
John Ernst, John Ernst Cafe. Yeah. You know, and I, I would throw in Carl Roche's with that. I mean, I remember, you know, growing up, you had Mater's, you had John Ernst Cafe, and you had Carl Roche's. And, and those were the, the three big German restaurants, all of which did an incredible business. If you would have told me 15 or 20 years ago that Mater's was going to be the only one of the three left, I, I, would, have, I, I would have said, no, these, these are institutions that are here forever. I, I would agree. Uh, Jeff, we had many memorable family gatherings at John Ernst Cafe. Uh, not sure if you remember my late father-in-law, the Honorable Robert J. Meek. Oh, certainly, uh, sure. I can't tell you how many, yeah, how many wonderful times we spent there, and that's why it was uh, it was a shame when they decided to close. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for calling. I, I I love John Ernst Cafe. I loved since I, I worked downtown. Um, I, I used to spend more time at Carl Roche's because you, you could walk over there after work and stuff. But yeah, these were th- these were all just wonderful restaurants. You would have, and it, it, you know, we thought about Milwaukee as being this incredible. You had all these different German restaurants, and like I say, it's not to knock Mater's. It's just that I, I would have. I'm surprised that Mater's is the only one of the three that's still left. Len, Len, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, so. My thought is actually the Milwaukee Alehouse's counterpart down there, and that would be Water Street Brewery, which I think was around for about the same length of time. And ironically, I know they have several other locations that are still open and running, uh, but it's called Water Street Brewery, and Mm -hmm. the main location... The home one on Water Street is closed. I, is it? I, I know. I, you know. I, when I saw your call come in, I, I checked that out, and, and you're right. It's, it, did it close during COVID? Is that what happened? And it just hasn't reopened yet. I think so, and they never reopened. I was shocked. Uh, I was down in Milwaukee for something uh, about six months ago. Uh, my brother-in-law and I, we wanted to go out, and I said, Ah, you know, you're you're staying downtown. Let's let's go to Water Street Brewery, and we we punched it in, and yeah. it, it was closed. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, just curious. Uh, the article about the alehouse. Now I know they have several other satellites as well. Did it say whether this closure is going to affect their other locations? I I, th- I do not believe so. Like, like the the one that I'm most familiar with is there's the alehouse up in Grafton, right? Like on the river there. I yep. think I think yep. it's different yeah, owners. Yep. I think it's different owners. Okay. I think, but that's that's. But thanks thanks for calling. You know, Water Street Brewery. I hadn't even realized that that had closed, which I guess is <laughs> it tells you that I, you know, I, I need to get out more, get out to different places. You know, related to that. Um, um, bar Louie, and and I don't. There, there used to be a Bar Louie at Bayshore. That's long gone. But when I lived in Whitefish Bay, that would be the place we'd stop off for beers and stuff. And additionally, there was a Bar Louie that was across, pretty much across from Water Street Brewery. And I, I think that one's closed as well. But yeah, you, you do have all these different places that are of this vintage, and they're all. They're all gone. Um, Jeff, the saloon, let's see. Uh, so many places are gone. Chi-Chi's, Big Boy, um, Sally's Steakhouse. I just always loved Sally's. Jeff, Boaters on the River. Yeah, that was in Thienesville. A lot of people just absolutely love that. Jeff, for me, it's the Boulevard Inn. Yeah, the bull, that goes back a long time um, on the kind of uh, west side. Jeff, I miss Smith Brothers Restaurant in Port Washington. Um, yeah, that's that's been gone for an awful long time. But when I was a kid, that was the big thing. You drive up to Smith Brothers Fish Shop in downtown uh, Port Washington. Jeff, RC's on, on North. Um, yes. Jeff, I enjoyed going to the Milwaukee Ale House for live music back in the day. COVID-19 has hurt a lot of the businesses in the area. Yeah, that, that's true. I think it's it's... It's COVID-19, 
And it's just, again, I think one of the things going on with the Yale House is that that's become a really hot area. And it, it wasn't 25 years ago. It, it just it just wasn't. They were, I can I remember meeting with the, the owner and talking to him, you know, back in the day. That's just when I was starting off a radio show. I think the Yale House was even one of our first advertisers, as I recall. And I was getting the story about, you know, guys that have this vision and they wanted to create a micropub. And, you know, so they, they get a small business loan and it turn, they, you know, you, you completely renovate that building. Jeff, judges and RCs, both on North Avenue, closed for a while now, oh, the 1980s. Uh, Jeff, um, Louise's was my absolute favorite. Um, let's see, uh, Joey Buenos, um, there's that one as well. Jeff, for me, Tumbleweeds in New Berlin, for me, was just absolutely outstanding. A lot of people are mentioning Chi-Chi's. Silver Spring House, uh, if you grew up where I did in, in Glendale, the Silver Spring House was an absolute institution. And what ended up happening is the owner, I think, passed away, and then some of the employees tried to run it for a couple years. It just it that's it, another place. It kind of breaks my heart because every once in a while I'll be driving up Green Bay Road across from Clutch Park and you look over and you see this building that's just seemed like for sale forever. But yeah, I mean many, many misspent evenings after softball games and stuff were spent at the Silver Spring House if you grew up around um, that area. Just boy, a lot of people um Miss Mark's big boy scriv um right, Shriners restaurant in Fond du Lac. Todd says Century Hall. Boy, that that's kind of going back. Jeff, for me, it was the Stone Told and the original John Hawks Pub, which was downtown as well. Yeah, it's all these places that are hot for a while, and then, well, times change, people change. And again, I hope they're able to recreate the Ale House somewhere else because it just it was just wonderful. It was groundbreaking. It was great for that neighborhood, and now it's going to be gone pretty soon. When we come back, let's find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.